Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to my guest, and wow, do we have a great show for you this week, we really need your help. Once a year, we try to learn a little bit about our audience and what it would like to hear more and less of via our annual survey. Please visit manpodcast.questionpro.com and spend about five minutes filling it out. It will help allow us to continue to bring you what we hope is the best free weekly long-form content in all art and will help us do it even better. You can find the survey at manpodcast.questionpro.com and a link to that on this week's show page at manpodcast.com. We need a lot more replies to reach statistical significance, and once we do that, I will stop begging you to fill out the survey. So please lend us a hand. Thanks. This week, Emmett Gowan. Gowan's Mariposas Nocturnus, Moths of Central and South America, A Study in Beauty and Diversity, was just out from Princeton University Press. The book, and it's a stunner, features photographs of hundreds of moths that Gowan has made in Central and South America over the last 15 years. It includes essays by Terry Tempest-Williams and by Gowan. Amazon offers it for 41 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Gowan will show related work in Here on Earth Now, Notes from the Field, in an exhibition that opens on September 28th at New York's Pace McGill Gallery. That show will remain on view through January 6th next year. Gowan first came to prominence in the 1960s for pictures he made of his wife Edith and of his family and friends around Danville, Virginia, right down near the North Carolina border. He's gone on to make pictures of how mankind's biggest projects have impacted landscapes in places such as the American West and in the modern-day Czech Republic. Museums that have presented surveys of his work include the Corcoran Gallery of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Princeton University Art Museum. This is Gowan's second appearance on The Man Podcast. Along with Frank Golke, he was on the show back in 2013 to discuss pictures of Mount St. Helens. We'll have a link to that on, on manpodcast.com. Emmett Gowan for the full hour after the break. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside LA at The Wex. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. Led by the Getty, Pacific Standard Time LALA is a far-reaching and ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. At the Getty Center, related musical performances start Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. with Sonorama, Latin American composers in Hollywood, Mexican Institute of Sound with special guests Sergio Mendoza and a band led by LA's own Alberto Lopez play tribute to Lalo Schifarin, Maria Griber, and other artists in the museum courtyard. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries 
The exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California, exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960 to 1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Emmett Gowan, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. It might come as a surprise to people that there is a relationship between the aerial landscapes of the industrial and military degradation of the American West and a few other places, pictures you made in the mid-1990s, and these pictures of living things, moths, but, but some forests too, in South America. How did one body of work come to be a kind of response to the other? Well, I'm not even sure I've worked out a good answer for this yet. A couple of things, though. Linkages have shown themselves to be pretty obvious. First Christmas that I photographed the Nevada test site, just a day or two before Christmas, found myself back in Virginia for Christmas and in Banos in Ecuador on the 1st of January. And the sort of absolute experience of being shaken up by all of that traveling and all of that displacement. Now, Virginia is not a displacement, but comparing what I love, a simple rural life in Virginia, with the Nevada test site and the over 1,000 atomic test that I witnessed there, witnessed the evidence of, not the test itself. And then ending up on New Year's Day in the town square in Ecuador was so moving and so touching. I, I remember it still as like breathing in the, the heat of the air, the moisture in the air. And it just so happened my chairman in the department, the, the Visual Arts, the Humanities Council at Princeton, had just a month before said, we're going to go to Ecuador to study Spanish, but why don't we meet up there? Why don't we join you there? And we've met this lady whose grandparents were insect collectors. You're sort of interested in that, aren't you? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be fun? And so we went along on this trip. And it was fun. It was amazing. Uh, we were taught a lot. It's not the first time I'd thought about insects, but this was a totally different experience. And Ecuador was a fresh new experience. Within the next year, what it, it, it almost happened in a single calendar year, but I photographed the test site two more times. And my mood changed from exuberant excitement, the thrill of finally getting to see this storied place, mysterious place. It was still blocked for overflight in those days. It's not now, but it, it was blocked then. And so I just felt like it was such a privilege to actually be able to see it. And the second, the third trips there just shook me to my core. And... I'm not a person who gets depressed. And in fact, I turned any <laughs> hint of wanting to be depressed in to give me some work to do. Just put me to a job, let me do something. And I just felt Ecuador, Costa Rica, Panama. None of these places meant anything to me yet, but I was, there was this feeling, I want to learn from these places. I want to spend time in these places. And I want to get to know 
environmental biologist. And none of that was a clear idea, but it was an impulse that just took hold of me. Were you conscious that the lush, verdant, humid Central American places, um, and South American places for that matter, were kind of the exact opposite of the bombed out, seemingly dead, dry desert of Nevada? I probably didn't analyze it so carefully as that. But I, I describe in the text for the Mariposas Nocturnus that Princeton has just published, I describe going to this cabin up in the Cordillera, the part of Cherokee that has the mountain ridge, the continental divide running through it. And we didn't even think about that it could be cold up there. And we'd left the canal zone with a couple of sheets to cover ourselves with. Really sort of silly thinking got up into the mountains and realized it was 3,000 feet up and that's an entirely different ecosystem and mist forest and rain and the chill is just to the bone. That's how shocked we were. But I loved every aspect of it. In fact, that cabin with its loneliness and the undisturbed forest just said, this is where I want to spend a lot of time. It's a little bit of the Boy Scout of my childhood coming out of me at that moment. But it was like a, a cabin with a place to cook and a refrigerator and electricity. And at the same time, it was where all the moths and the insects were. It was where there was an undisturbed forest. It was just heaven. You said a moment ago that you'd thought about insects before, and I took that to mean that you've thought about them in a photographic sense before. When and why? It's pretty particular, though. As a child, I kept specimens of things. I kept living things. I kept the black snake for a year. I, I would pick up frogs and other things, and I built little places to keep them in, partly because I was a Boy Scout and had nature badges and so forth to work on. But more than that, it's because where it, it was where I was happiest. It was where I felt like I was on the edge and learning. 1976, during that summer, I had found a book in an abandoned house that was a 19th century book of rhetoric. And the book had been almost eaten away by insects so that only a fragment of the letters showed on the page. And I loved it, brought it home. And a little later that summer, some of the children had picked up a cigar box and filled it with insects that they'd found laying dead on the windowsill of an old barn. Things that had flown to the window, for they had gone to the light but couldn't escape, and they died there at the windowsill. So they brought that little box home, and one day they were showing it to me, and I said, ah, that would be so nice if you'd lend that to me for an hour. I put it with my book, and, and just, you know, who knows? And, and I remember in particular holding the box, the cigar box, about a meter in the air above the book, and gently just shaking out a little at a time, the way you would salt a flank steak or something. You know, just let them float down. I probably was remembering Duchamp, but anyhow, what, whatever was driving me, I let them float down, and I was astonished by how beautifully they fell into all the right places. I, mean, I couldn't move a thing, or I thought I could move maybe one thing and then regretted it. Made an 8 by 10 negative, both in color and black and white, and the color one stuck with me, and it was 
it was all by itself. It didn't have any brothers and sisters then, but it was an important image, and, and people responded to it in an interesting way also. So I knew there was something in that realm for me. And then later I had a Boy Scout troop for a very short time, and all the kids wanted to do insects. And I said, sure, sure, I can help with that. And I sort of insisted that they pin things up that look halfway decent and do the proper identification. So it wasn't totally new to me, but I didn't imagine doing anything in that area. In fact, a student had once showed me a box, he said, had great, fabulous butterfly specimens in it. <laughs> and I was working on you know, the American environment, and I said, don't show it to me. I don't want to see it. And I, and I can look back at that, and then that funny thought, don't show it to me. I'll get sucked in. I'd, I'd rather not know now. Wait till later than maybe. So I guess I knew that something was going on there. I mean, it, it, it probably had... It would have spoken to me at any other time if I'd just gotten the right exposure. And at the end of the test site cycle, I, w I was profoundly ready. One more question on the link between the test site pictures and the work in, in this book. One of the few full-page plates in the book is of the primary mist forest near the Continental Divide in Panama. It's a 2008 picture, and it's the image on the left-hand side opposite which your essay begins. It's almost literally the pictorial opposite of some of the Nevada test site pictures, right down to the vine-covered or secondary growth-covered tree that dominates the picture. The tree both looks like a mushroom cloud, a lot like a mushroom cloud, and the shape of the top of it also recalls the Nevada test site craters that, that you photographed in the mid-1990s that we've been talking about. Is all that intentional? Somebody came up to Harry Callahan one time in an exhibition, and he said, Mr. Callahan, I'm so excited to meet you. In this picture behind you on the wall, are you using negative and positive space to say something to the viewer? He shook his head and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, that came to mind as a kind of disclaimer. But I do see those things. That that tree, I had I had watched that tree for almost ten years before I made this picture, and I had other pictures of it that were softer and gentler and j just different. But I, I was somehow this just worked in this context, and it's a place I love to be. I mean, I, that that tree is like a totem for me. I think it's it's not completely dead. But it isn't the thriving tree that it once was. It's lost a lot of its limb and so forth, and it's covered with parasites, with uh, epiphytes and bromeliads and so forth. There's just a beauty in that to me. And I guess if it, if, if it has this overtone of a nuclear test, well, forces bigger than me must be at work. It, it reminds me, I mean, that single picture reminds me of the way Robert Adams in his work often sets off pictures of beauty with pictures that he thinks of as being nihilistic, the way he, he juxtaposes pictures of single, beautiful, amazing trees with, with pictures of, of clear cuts. And it, it's a picture in which you represent both nihilism and 
and verdancy and growth in, in, in one picture. And it reminded me of, or it, it reminded me to reread. Bob Adams has, has a new book out. It's called Art Can Help. It's a, it's a small little book that you can hold in your hand. And one of the pictures he writes about, uh, it, and it's a book in which Adams writes about, you know, about 40 different pictures, maybe four, six, eight, eight or so paragraphs on, on each of these pictures he selected. And one of the pictures he selected is, is a picture of yours, Sedan Crater, northern end of Yucca Flat, Nevada test site from, from 96. And in his four or five paragraph explanation of why he chose that picture, he references your Moths project. project. And he writes, taken together, the two sets of pictures, so the test site pictures and the moths, taken together, the two sets of pictures test one's spirit almost to the limit. As the Elizabethan song asks, what is beauty but a breath? And yet, dot, dot, dot. And then then he transitions into the last paragraph of his mini essay. We've talked a little bit about those two extremes and how at the moment of beginning the Moths Project, you were conscious of the two extremes. Did the difference between the test site pictures and the moths main, remain important through the project, or was there a point at which they kind of transitioned into not being a response, just being something else? I don't think there's a proper answer to this, but I'll just say that once you fall into the crevasse of looking at something exquisitely evolved in the hands of nature, and you bounce from one exquisite creation to another, to another, to another. It's like you're tumbling off of rocks, like a drop of water falling down a crevasse. And you just are stunned by one beauty after another. And I think you become so absorbed. I became totally engaged in questions. Could I touch this moth? Could I could I coax it to move from here to there? Could I pick it up? Uh, if I take its picture, do I have to be really careful? If the flash goes off, will, will the moth fly and I'll never see it again? And I was always on the edge of, I was trying to make pictures of moths that I had never seen before. And so, and often it was the only one I ever saw. So it was fragile. I mean, you want, you want the image, you want it the way it is, and yet you want to see, can I do more? How, how can I understand this or show this in a stronger way? That engagement, so, I mean, maybe when I go to sleep at night, I could think about the test site, but I mostly just forgot all of that. By the, probably by the second trip, I was so happy to have a sense of a place to belong, even though and it, it took about five years to make the first five grids and two or three years just to make the first one. I didn't know how to photograph the moth. And they're so small. And, you know, the mechanism, the way you attract them is to set up a, an old bed sheet in the forest and put a bright light on it. And they come to the light. It's, uh, it's totally magic. Our guide in Ecuador had given us the first lesson in that, but every child knows that you go out to the front porch at night and there's something whirling around the light. So the, the directness all of, of all of that and the beauty of it just sucked me in. I love the word transcendent, and I love the idea of, of what Joseph Campbell uses, this idea of the radiance of what is unseen coming through the visible. 
I think that's always in my hope and dream of whatever I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking for that sensation of a feeling. Here is something that is profound in itself, and the hint of something unseen seems to be transmitted through its contemplation. Now, you don't understand any of this when you're doing it. It's just, you know, it's a big problem. Just is this a vertical or horizontal? And I, at that early point, for several years, I didn't know the answer to that because I didn't have a format and I didn't have a way to approach the moths. But eventually it was vertical once I made a grid. And once I realized that the grid was a superb display mechanism to present lots of material for the comparative analysis that a child is about to do on that page. But 25 of those is just about right, and it's just confusing enough, and it's just rich and complicated enough. So you say, here it is. Somebody asked me the other day, what was my favorite part, and I, or, or what was my favorite image, or what was my favorite moth? I said, I do have a favorite part. I surprised myself in the quickness of my response. I do have a favorite part. It's the whole book. It's everything. And it's the everything that is its world, and the, the world it depicts is all of that. In fact, this is only the tip of the iceberg. This is the fragment of the world. And if you think this is amazing, think how wonderful, miraculous, and beautiful the whole world is. And of course, there is a kind of evangelical urge under all of that, which so might run something like this. So might we take better care of what we have? Something like that. You mentioned three things there that I want to get to. You mentioned evolution, a key element of how you made the pictures. But before getting to those two, you mentioned the grids. There are at least, and there are in the grids alone, 1,275 pictures of moths here. Each is published at maybe a couple inches by an inch. I can understand why, of course, a 1,275-page book wasn't practical or realistic. <laughs> <laughs> but I was struck that there isn't even a single full-page plate of a moth in the book, which leads me to think that the grids are the thing here for you, not the individual pictures. Why, why that decision? What, what is the importance of that decision? It eventually became something I deeply believed in. Somebody at the Smithsonian, one of the key things that happened, when I realized I wanted to be in the tropics, I, I turned to a friend at Princeton, environmental biologist Andy Dobson, and he gave me some things to read, but he said, you know, where you need to go is Panama, the, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. So you should go there. And when I applied to them, they said, oh, well, you have to have a sponsor, a scientist, somebody work with you. And they eventually, I ended up under the care of Dr. Donald Windsor, who's a beetle specialist. I'm sure that was like, they tried to talk everybody into it, and everybody said no. <laughs> and it just turned out that he was not just a moth specialist, but he had a little bit of a, of a special feeling about art. And a, a, a tenderness that I, I, I connected with immediately, his, his enthusiasm for his beetles, his chrysomelid beetles, just little tortoiseshell beetles. Anyhow, 
that that spun along that that introduction there was an opening right away somebody said well not right away a few years down the road somebody said you better make a poster for the lobby because people are starting to wonder what you're doing coming down here artists don't come down and 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 I thought oh, okay and then the grid form because a poster that's what you do that's what the the biologists do they they make a poster they put a you know they square it all up and put a lot of stuff in it but it's usually more graphs and writing than pictures and I wanted it to be all visual so much so that I in the beginning I didn't even think about the names of the insects I almost didn't want to know and making that first grid was so difficult and so challenging I thought oh this is really a worthy enterprise it's like a rebus or a it's a puzzle and it can have rhythm and balance and harmony and the beauty of its own of course I knew about the Beshers and actually admired them immensely but that isn't what made me surrender to this idea I think the surrender really was that in a grid the biggest moth and the smallest moth can be the same size and I love that and I love that democracy of representation yet just because you're small doesn't mean you don't get to be big and just because you're big doesn't mean you don't get to be small you can <laughs> you can all meet here as a kind of equal and it happened not all at once and I've I've held to this thought that grid number seven was the last made in Panama before I started going other places and went with my friend Don Windsor to Ecuador and just as we were getting ready to go I had a couple of ideas I wanted to make panoramas in the forest and I was thinking how could I do that and I was thinking, how can I bring with me a background? If I can get them off the move, can I bring a background? Something I love already. And literally the night or day before, copied eight or nine pages out of a book on Piero della Francesca and printed them up, little eight and a half by 11 prints that looked great. I mean, they looked very inviting and they were good company already, just just being printed up in, in my backpack. But when I got there, well, I was thinking this is a pretty crazy idea. Within one night of work, I realized what a gift it was. And something landed on a white surface. That's, well, you're sort of stuck, so you take the picture. If it's on glass, that's another kind of a stuck, but it's a gift too because the background then is black and the moth is isolated. But when you put that detail of the trees in the upper left-hand corner of the meeting of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, it's just a few leaves that you see, but it echoes something about the moth, and it is also so human. You know it's a painting. You know it's a thing human-made. And it is... it brought into view something I'd felt from the beginning when I walk outside the research cabin and there's this brilliantly painted blue wall and a moth lands on it. That's a cultural surface that it's sitting on. There's nothing that blue in the forest. 
So it's a visitation. And it's saying the word visitation makes my mind jump over to the foreword that Terry Tempest Williams wrote, which is so eloquent, so beautiful. What a gift that is to have her write something for a book. But also, she uses the image of the visitation, the, the annunciation visitation. And that's how I was feeling, you know, a moth on a piece of yellow painted wood. So for a while, I looked for scraps of buildings <laughs> that had been discarded, lovely colors that were just fragments up in the mountains in Panama. I saw a carpenter cut the rail of a fence short by maybe five inches and has a maybe three by five inch block of wood. But the block of wood had been soaked in automobile motor oil to make it so that the termites wouldn't eat the wood, saturate the wood with this awful stuff, (laughs) poison it. And I watched it fall to the ground longingly. And then finally, in my best childish Spanish, said, can I have that? He looked at me like I was like, like, what a crazy thing to ask. Si bueno, si bueno, es nada, it's nothing, it's nothing. Of course you can have it. And I picked it up like it was was a golden little treasure and toted, I've still toted around with me. And I can't say how many things have been on that little piece of black wood. The meeting of two worlds is what interests me. And... Uh, somebody said to Frederick Selmer once that, that what, a, what a painter does is sort of what you're doing in the photograph. <laughs> and he, he had a funny response. He said, he said to the interviewer, we probably did, don't have a pure thought of our own. Everything we think is just a reflection of something we've seen or heard. And then he jumps over to something else that's just stuck with me. He says, the important thing is quality of attention span and to use it for acceptance rather than for negation. And that seems to me what Bob Ab- Adams is doing with his book. He's, he's saying, don't just study negation. Don't just study the negative. Don't experience the transcendent. It's there too. I think that's, I think that's exactly what he's doing, yeah. There was a neat bit of biographical circularity in, in what you just said about the visitation and and enunciation that's also in, 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 as you mentioned, the introduction to the book. As listeners may know, uh, you grew up in a very religious household. I read in an interview that you read the Bible several times before you were even 12 years old. (laughs) It's pretty strange. It even hits me as strange sometimes now. I don't think I understood much, but I I do say in the, in the introduction to my afterward, I quote St. Matthew, yes, the, at the very beginning, the little story of uh, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break in and steal. And I think even as a child that really hit me. And there was a there was a wisdom in Scripture, once in a while, that was resonant and and seemed eternal. And I still feel the same way about that. So I. That was a nice way to. The the big part is the last sentence of that. For where your heart, or where your treasure is, there will will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And and in a way, that's the 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 undisturbed forest or the 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 problem of degradation or 
of being too many people on the planet and not having enough water, enough air, you know, facing huge problems. We know it, but we just kind of go on. One more thing on, on the backgrounds, which come from pictures of Renaissance paintings and, and all, all kinds of things like that, related to that. How important is it to you that the viewer, me as I flip through the book, recognize or experience a glimmer of understanding of what the moths are on and how much of that is is mostly just for you? Oh, I think it's all for me. But <laughs> it's all for me. And it's and it's all sort of moves me into a, a zone of kinships and deep alliances that give me courage. But I think it's possible for people to know. And of course, I tell them. And I even show a little display of eight of the pictures that I used as background. So I'm saying, you know, think about this. It's pretty crazy. I know. And and something that you know that you know has a face in it, and it's such and such. And you think of it one way because you know the whole thing. But if you only looked at a twist of hair or a bit of beard or a corner of somebody's sleeve that's the scale of a moth and and i immediately just adored that i, I, I loved how it, you could lo- you could completely lose the reference to what it was and yet in a pictorial way it could support the way the moth fits into the frame because i think every one of those little pictures has to be coherent in and of itself so they should be able to be removed and still be coherent. They won't all be equally exciting, but they should have a certain completeness and a good descriptive, to do a good job of the description. But when you go to put them into a grid, into a, some harmonious relationship, it's amazing. We're, we're, tolerant, you know, we're tolerant of many things when they're just lined up. But if you start to love them with, a little passion. It's got to be more than just lined up. It's going to be lined up on a rhythmic basis. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And I have two examples, and we'll have, I think, pictures of these on, on manpodcast.com that, that will kind of show that. One, they're, they're both from Index 38. One is a picture of, here goes my Latin, Trichromia cardinalis, a red and yellow moth who is sitting just below the number 1556, which, which a painter or, or, or draftsman has. And so you get this moment of 450 years of, of interaction on, in, in this one little moment. And then in, in the line of the grid just below it, Pero Gimenezaria. Sorry, Latin scholars. No, uh, no, no. Pero Gimenezaria. You uh, almost hit it. I was... I was 50% kind of reminds me of my high school career. The, uh, with a, with a, a moth with two browns, the colors of the moth are two browns, and the moth is on top of what looks like a watercolor of, of the top of a tree. And it's this moment of scale disjunction. The moth is either, you know, we, we know we're looking at, uh, at a watercolor of, of a tree, but still, the, uh, and, and it's not an actual tree, but there's still this moment of tension between the size of the moth and, 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 and an understanding of the size of the tree. I mean, you're looking at the page, then go to the bottom right-hand corner. That's Trichromia sorex. And I read that name. I didn't just 
remember it. But <laughs> that 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 little trichromia is sitting on the headlight of the car, parked on a logging road in the middle of the night in French Guiana. And it was happily situated on that the, the, the crystal plastic lens of the headlight. And the way the flash illuminated the moth and the details of uh, out of focus and chrome and so forth, you would still never know where you are. You would never know the scale. You would never put that on the headlight of a car. It just it just mentally won't go there. It's part of a kind of joyous game. The the moth right above it has a, a wasp. It's a wasp mimic. It has a white band or block right in the narrows between the abdomen and the body. And I send it to the friend that we stay with down in French Guiana. And he says, oh yeah, I know this. And he sent me back the name. He had been the one who described it. It was, you could say, it was his moth. <laughs> I guess he did know the name of it. And that was a, that's a species that was given its name very recently. It's 2008. Genocerda, 2008. I should note that in the book, whenever you give the name of the species, you also give the year in which it was found or named. Well, and you know, I started out with the idea, no names, no, you don't need to know anything. And then the biologists that I have worked with and talked with and so forth, that means so much to them. The name, it connects them to a historical superstructure that they feel like they're just a twig on the, you know, on the edge of that. But they love being part of that. And I began to really treasure that. And I also felt like that if I were a child, and I'm looking at this, and it says Rothschild, 1909, or you know something even older than that, something Fabricius, 1776, it, 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 it's, it's like the reaction you had to the 1556. It takes you to another time and place in history, and you picture sort of the world differently. All of those displacements, one of the Russian constructivist critics said that one of the things that art did is it defamiliarized things. It slowed us down. It made things harder to understand, made them more of a puzzle and yet more of an object of contemplation and consideration. And I don't know where that paragraph entered my life. I think a student left it laying on the table having come from a course on Russian literature when I was teaching. But I picked it up, read it, and said, wow, this is it. This is what it's all about. The defamiliarization of things. They're familiar and they're not. And we sort of learn in the process of sorting that out. That reminds me of one of the land, one of one of the few landscape pictures in the book, a multi-frame panorama of a section of forest on the path to the summit of Cerro Pierre in Panama. And you write in your essay in the book that being in the forest freed you up to engage with with the panorama, which is one of the oldest and earliest photographic traditions dating dating back to the mid nineteenth century. Panorama pictures. Why? What about being there freed you up to to make one or make a few? Well, 
of course, I never really know the answer to these things, but I, but I, 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 you and I spoke for just a second before we went on the air that I had this feeling of having come up this path, turned around to see where I'd come from, and the path was gone. There was, there was no way I could see it, and that was just one level of the experience. And the other thing was that I could almost reach out and touch everything I was seeing. There was no way much more than a few leaves could go into a single frame. You, you could get more than a few leaves, but it wasn't, you couldn't have the sense of that what the forest looks like is something that you mentally construct as you spin around. And if you'd spun your head up into the canopy, that would have been a whole other experience. And so the, the process of being in the forest is of adding one experience to another, to another, to another. It's panoramic in its very nature. I never said that before, but I, but I realize that's the way it works. The way a trail passes under your feet as you're walking. It's like you're, you're, walking, you're stepping into new frames of new pictures as you go up the trail. And I just... I have friends who've made panoramas. My good friend Jim Dow made the panoramas of all the baseball stadiums in the U.S. and soccer stadiums and all. And I just, I mean, there's a lot of respect for that. And yet, I just never saw myself as a person making panoramas. And then, and I was in a situation in which, if I wanted to experience this later as an image, was the only way out. And I had the cheapest little pocket camera with me and I did put it on my little tripod and and spun around kept it a little bit straight but I even preserved the crookedness of it all the, the sort of displacement of each frame but I I loved the way that image came out it it was a fair substitute for what it would be like to stand in the forest and I, and that experience is such a treasure your mind collects the experiences much more strongly than the visual representation. You know, the things we remember are like the snake that I halfway passed and then I saw the middle of it. And I said to my friends behind me, I said, you must be back where the head is. It was like a, like a nine-foot-long king snake. We didn't know what it was, but I saw this black thing about two inches in diameter and I knew it was organic. And it it sat there for a minute and stared at us as they snapped their pictures. And when it decided to go, it it snapped its head right, then left, and threw itself down the hillside. And it just seemed to skim across the tops of plants as it disappeared instantly. That's what you remember. Uh, Don, I, I came up on Don Windsor just Two minutes after he said, he was still shaking a little bit, he said, the cougar just walked down the trail. And when I reached for my camera, that's when she stopped dead, studied me for a second, and then bolted down the hill. And it's like those things. We saw the, the jaguar tracks all the time. But, but he was looking at a little beetle. and He was so still that she just walked right up and she wasn't that far away and she could have come his direction or, or fled. She fled. And I, I, I met a fertile ants on a trail in French Guiana 
It was quite open. It wasn't disguised at all. And yet, I think if it had not been flicking its tail vigorously, I mightn't have seen it. I was about six feet away. And his head was about two feet off the ground, and it was ready to go. And I, I, I just stopped dead, started backing up very slowly, and with a little Buddhist mannerism, I said, uh, this is your trail. You were here first. This forest, in fact, belongs to you. It's all yours. I'm leaving now. I mean, you're no harm. <laughs> and these, these are the little treasures. It's experiential. But you can't do that in a book. To, to me, you, I can't do that in a book. I can do it with a story, but I can't do it w with a bunch of pictures of moths. This is what archives and personal papers are for, too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, but but I know you will understand what I when I say. You know, this is a this is a book that's made for all of us. It's made for anybody. It's, it's got to have a life of its own. But I think if you really want to experience a thing is sit with the book and a child in your lap. And let the child tell you what it's all about. And of course, that's not your story. That's the child's story. But it's a good story. My guest is Emmett Gowan. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades, featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org revolution for more. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Misty Kiesler Haunt, opening on September 23rd. The exhibition is curated by Andrea Carnes, who describes it as both beautiful and horrific, and who says that, quote, The series magnifies the strangeness of the existence of such places where fantasies are manifested. People desire and will pay for the sensation of fear, and that is a surprising and provocative revelation that comes out in these works. Misty Kiesler at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, through November 26th. And now back to my conversation with Emmett Gowan. You know, a few minutes ago, you mentioned each of these moths being the result of an evolutionary process. And I, I, when I first went through this book, that was one of the very first things I thought. And, and I thought about how so much of your oeuvre emphasizes the passage of time from the, the family pictures in which we see people change to your pictures of your wife, Edith, same thing, uh, pictures of Petra in, in the Jordanian desert, your pictures of the American West and the Czech Republic, pictures in which we see human impact laid across thousands, tens of thousands year old landscapes and geological processes. Did you think of this project as being engaged with the passage of time, evolutionary time, or did that emerge as you were in the midst of it? I, I feel like I'm always saying I don't know the answer to this. I... <laughs> well, let me let me let me add one more thing then, because I in, in your essay in the book you kind of hint at how important that idea might have been, because you write about 
five moths and five specific defenses against predators. I, I, I think that's the right word, but I'm not sure that those moths have developed in which you photographed. And, and you mention those five defenses and then you show us those five moths so that our eyes can go find those defenses. So it seems like it might have been there. Well, those are all things that I learned. Those were all experiential things. I mean, I mentioned that we looked at the image that was had the name of Jeannot Serda in French, French Guiana that he had named in 2008. And it's a wasp mimic. And biologists throw away, throw throw this around, and say, "Oh well, you know that whole family. That's all. There's bee mimics, and there's wasp mimics, and there's there's all kinds of mimicry going on." Well, that was a big discovery when mimicry didn't exist as a concept until Henry Bates came up with it in around 1854-56 in the Amazon, and he realized that he would catch things, butterflies, say, that had apparently the same pattern and apparently but one he found the birds would eat if given the chance and the other one the birds wouldn't eat and he realized this mimicry has advantages the one that looks like the toxic insect is protected because the birds eat some of those get sick and they remember and they leave the others alone so a whole class of insects and, and bee and wasp mimics and that kind of thing have similar advantages from just looking like something that's, that, say, a skunk or a possum or something like that might consider food and then think better of. I just learned those things little by little by little. I mean, do I, do I like that that's the way it is? I mean, it just makes my admiration glow. But I, I would never have thought of it. I picked up that little moth, and those bubbles started hissing out from inside its wing joint. And it's a sort of orangey, yellow mass, big ball of bubbles came out of the wing. And I thought, what a performance. And then I got a smell of it, and I realized this stuff is probably you know, something you don't want to mess with. I mean, it smelled really toxic. And it was later that I confirmed that that was, in fact, the case. This uh, Thomas Eisner, a biologist at Cornell, this was his whole or a key part of his life's discoveries that insects had these chemical defenses that made their lives a little more possible. And some combine acids at the moment they're required and the two acids go together and they squirt something out and it's formidable. Or they eat plants. They eat, they're the caterpillar consumes a certain plant and they're very much specialist in the plant they want to live on or the kind of plant they want to live on at least. And they're doing it concentrating an alkaloid or a toxin that they sequester in their bodies and when disturbed will release a jolt of that and the smell must be enough, but if not the smell, the taste, and they're let go. And before we knew about Tom Eisner, we some did some experiments in Ecuador where in the, when the morning came and there were a lot of insects still on the sheet, we were, we were ready to pick up and go. But instead of just shaking the sheet up in the air and letting everything fly off, we picked off certain ones and we said, what will happen if we throw this up in the air and it starts to fly off? And the birds would come in instantly and have a look. 
And sometimes they'd grab it for a second, and then they'd let it go. They'd say, okay. He grabbed it. It was lunch, but then it wasn't. And he knows something we don't know. He knows that's not to eat. And sometimes they would just get close enough to have a good look. And you'd be hovering right there in the air watching them all fly, flying along with it, looking, and, and then fly off. She'd go back to her branch somewhere. And there's actually a, a page or a grid of stains where one night was a lot of activity at the sheet and a lot of things must have gotten disturbed because there were hundreds of these deposits of toxin on the sheet where an insect had been disturbed enough so that they spent some of their survival capital in giving out a bolt of repugnant juice to make something leave it alone. Probably was just another moth and they probably weren't in any danger at all, but they don't know that. Speaking of Thomas Eisner, Eisner, who, who is known as the father of chemical ecology, as you note in a footnote, Eisner died in, in 2011. And I noticed a number of times in the foot, footnotes to your essay that a number, quite a number of the scientists you referenced died during the course of this project. Did that have an impact on you or what impact did that have on you? It, it sounds biblical, if you ask me. I mean, it's just not asked, not what tomorrow will bring, but live for today. Do what you can do now. I mean, I just think that's, that has a sort of biblical resonance to it. I wasn't close to Michael Majerus. I liked him immensely. He was Who also died during the course of the project. Yeah, yeah. And Jean-Paul Vernillon, I didn't do that good, but a Belgian biologist physicist, really, was working on transmission of light through the shells, wings of insects and defensive mechanisms and so forth and chemical defenses. And, and he was killed shortly after a, a trip that we shared, went home to Belgium and uh, simply was killed in an automobile accident. But it, it did strike me and, and that I I wanted to reference these people and that that had happened just seemed appropriate to honor them in a way. I mean, I don't think I've ever experienced such general kindness and goodness from a group of people as I have received from the biologist. And I think they're bemused by me sometimes and and I'll say, I'll come in all excited, oh, I saw something new and they, they say, oh, you mean new to you. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, new to me. And then I'm not new. And the idea of new to a biologist means new to science. But they sort of smile at me and go on, but was always treated with the greatest kindness. And I felt a great kinship with these people. I mean, I still do. My friend Don Windsor, I think if Don Windsor had died from a snake bite or something, boy, I would have been thrown sideways. But Thank God that hasn't happened. The cougar didn't get him. I have a couple questions that kind of go into your back catalog a bit, if, if you will. One of which, for me, relates to these pictures. I, I think in some ways the pictures in, in your oeuvre that the moth pictures are most like, and this might be a little weird, are the pivot agriculture pictures. Pictures which are draw dropping for lots of reasons and which have been really influential to other artists, um, including to Edward Bertinsky, who has made his own pictures of, of the practice. The, the pivot agriculture pictures are both of indeterminate 
scale to the viewer, kind of as these moth pictures are. And there are also pictures of a thing on a background that seems simple, but in which we can get lost as we do with the moth pictures. I understand how and why the moth pictures held your interest for a long time, both pictorially and, and in the stories you tell in your essay and that you've, you've told here. Why did the pivot, picture, pivot agriculture pictures hold your interest for so long across years and trips? Well, I think for the same reason, and then it's very perceptive of you to see how closely connected they are. And I, I always felt that the, the pivot pictures were a topology. Like, in a sense, um, it wouldn't say that all Bescher works were a topology, but the whole of their work is a topology. And I thought that way about the pivot. I mean, I discovered the pivots while I was photographing Hanford, the nuclear reservation. A, a pilot said, well, if you'll stay in the plane for another hour and I don't have to go back to the airport, I won't charge you anything, but I, you can see what I'm doing. And he was photographing crop circles with an infrared camera where they were able to ascertain whether more fertilizer or more water was required. Now, now I didn't really understand how that worked, but I liked this guy immensely. And he said, you know, if you see something, I'll let, you know, let me know and I'll set it up for you. And we saw one thing and it was a, a life changing thing. And it was the the circle was such a beautiful thing. And I, uh, probably some people have pointed out that I might have a thing about circles, but then who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? I mean, what we wouldn't get through life if we didn't get some joy out of, well, here comes Thanksgiving again, and then, and then here comes Christmas. You know, it's life itself is just full of them. And, and in fact, it's an unpublished book that I want to do. I would step on a snake or something of the pivot agriculture. And, uh, and they even have the title for the book, which is the 100 circle farm. There really was a farm called the 100 circle farm. And I, I had probably seen and photographed it from the air, but a month or so later driving down the Columbia river, I passed a big sign announcing the 100 circle farm. That's what this all is. I mean, it might be the 100,000 circle farm, but you're perceptive with that. And I'm just, I'm totally at home with that. And I love the thingness of things, if that makes any sense. I mean, William Carlos, well, William Carlos Williams saying so much depends on the white wheelbarrow or the white chicken standing beside the white red wheelbarrow or something like that. He was just saying so much depends on things. Things create not ideas. The, the things represent the possibility of an unknown combination of realities. And, and that's, I mean, when you say that in terms of the moths, I mean, the moth is an unknown reality, I mean, it's a known reality, but an unknown combination with its background, with its setting. And that's what constitutes the picture. A photograph. I mean, a photograph is always that. I mean, you, you're look. You're always looking for where the thing belongs. What is its proper setting? And portraiture is nothing but that. And I, I actually, one of the things in another topology that I began to see was that these grids looked like yearbook pictures, little portraits of us children when we were in the third grade, lined up in little rows against the the uniform background. 
and so the uniformity would carry the, the the field, but our little peculiarities of cheek and nose were the joys of our parents and the source of our ridicule. I mean, it was just <laughs> great stuff. So I did think I mean, we we put quotes around when we say moth portraits, we put quotes around it because we think of it as being it is a moth portrait, but it's also it's just another one of uh, the Earth's children. My last two things I want to talk about are a little disjunctive, but sometimes when one is reading up and prepping, there are things that just stick in the back of our head that we have to ask about. And this one goes back to the early to mid-60s when you were driving through kind of the Virginia-North Carolina border area with Edith, who was probably not yet your wife. When you stopped at a black church and asked to make pictures there, the parishioners assented. You made the pictures and later made a book of which I understand you only made six copies. It's only one. I only made one copy. I only made one copy. What happened to it? Why only one? Well, I I made the one copy at the end of my undergraduate years in Richmond. And I made it as part of a, uh, I I think I made three large books. And they were the application for the out-of-state fellowship, without which I would not have been able to go to graduate school in 1965. I wasn't thinking Vietnam then, but I sure think about it now when I think about that time period. And it was just, it was simply a handmade book. I had seen a copy of Robert Frank's handmade version of Black and White Things, where he just mounted the pictures back to back and found a way to bind them into a book. And I realized that with with no publication funds or no technical skills that I didn't have, I could create my own handmade book, and I couldn't wait to do it. I made seven or eight of them, and three or four supported my last year of undergraduate education, and the, the next three accounted for the Virginia Out-of-State Fellowship for Graduate School. So that's certainly why I made them. I have something that I that I don't want to forget saying, that out of all of the moth work and the travels, a kind of urgency on those occasions when Edith could not make the trip with me, I began to take little trace silhouettes of her with me to the forest. And we're coming up on the celebration of the publication of Mariposas Nocturnus, the study in beauty and diversity, which is the the Princeton book, and with an exhibition at Pace McGill in New York that opens this September the 28th and has an unusually long run uh, through the 1st of January. And in it, we feature about 15 of the pages from the Mariposas book. But we also feature about 23 or 4 of the images made during the same time frame, which are really, oh, I, I started to call them Edith in Panama. Even when we're not in Panama, we might really be in Virginia, but there's something about the picture that references Panama. And when Edith was in Panama early on, it was just a black cardboard cutout. I tell that story again in the text, but it it might be worth telling here. I'd, first time I'd taken a tracing on a black piece of cardboard. I hadn't even cut it out, but 
during my time in Panama, I had a moment where I wasn't doing anything, and I cut it out with my little Swiss Army knife scissors. And five or six days later, in the most remote part of Panama, just this treasure place of treasure of biodiversity and wilderness, I was running my little generator and the light and the white sheet, which the moths are attracted to. Somewhere in the middle of the night, around 2 o'clock, I remembered the silhouette, and I went and got it and stuck it up on a little banister. It was sort of in a, you know, there was a, a bit of a house, a building with a bit of a front porch, and there was a banister there. And the sheet was in front of it, and I set the, the cutout on the banister and looked at it, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so I went on back to the photographing moths, and then an hour or two later, having completely forgotten that experience, turned around to look at the sheet, and I thought for a second that she was there on the other side of the sheet, and that this was her cast shadow. And it was really her for about four or five seconds. And, you know, people say that when you die, you remember everything. And I think in that moment, I had that same kind of experience where there's this flood of experience, all of the memory from our complex lives, all these, we've been together for 52 years married and three or four years before that. And that all those memories come swirling in and, and then I realized it's only a piece of cardboard. And and it was powerful. The picture, which is a full page in the book, is, is, is amazing. It looks almost just like a Renaissance print. I, well, I like all of that. You know, I, no apologies. <laughs> I mean, it take a certain uh, sort of childish joy in referencing and including in the show in new york there's a there's a collection of all the cutouts not all of them but a lot of the cutouts made over these almost 20 years and la uh, summer before last i i laid them out on a canvas and so there are photographs that have been traced which are laid on a canvas and traced onto the canvas then i painted them in and photographed the canvas so in the show is a print which is a photograph of a canvas, which are a collection of photographs of real people behaving like real people. I sort of joke and say that it's the insect's view of our life cycle. It's like, as if to offer the insect some sort of equal exposure to how our life cycle works. There's a, there's a hint of that in this, and I call it a painting for William Blake. And it's and well, and it's a and it's of course it's a painting full of Edith and full of William Blake and full of that way in which history is alive for us. I mean, it's been not a day in my life that I don't think about Frederick Sommer or Harry Callahan or Walker Evans. But I think about William Blake, who I never knew. And I think about Hercules Sagers. So artists become a kind of family in absentia or family at a great distance, family removed, in, in the same way that great books do. You know, all, all of these pleas by Edward Wilson, E.O. Wilson, uh, Life on Earth, Half Earth, 
if I turned to the shelf, I'd find the rest of them. They just don't come to mind right now. But these these stories become part of our experience. And in that same way, Henry Bates and Alfred Russell Wallace, the 19th century collectors, professional collectors and entomologists, that set such a uh, foundation for modern scientific investigation. I just always felt close to that. I mean, I, I knew I wasn't going to ever be a scientist, but I, does it mean you don't, you're not inspired by what these people have to say? Your mentioning of the familial aspect of, of peers and friends brings me to the last thing I wanted to ask about. In 1971, so 46 years ago, your first exhibition, yeah, I know, right? I had to, I had to pull out a calculator to do the math. I was so <laughs> good, mistrustful good of my own. <laughs> but your your first show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York was a two-person show, and the other artist was Robert Adams. You showed, or the museum selected, the, the curator of the show was was Peter Bunnell, who, who was later uh, your colleague at Princeton. You, you showed four or five years' worth of work with which was almost entirely, maybe four or five exceptions, work made in, in Danville, Virginia. Turning back the clock 46 years, I mean, we all know how it turned out for, for both you and, and Robert Adams, but do you remember what you thought of that pairing at the time? I'm sure I didn't understand it. As I think, and, and Adams would probably say the same, but I think we both, we can laugh about this. We say, you know, when when filling out your curriculum vitae or making a copy or just checking it over, you see that early, early show there, 1971, and with Robert Adams. And, and, and so I always want to put it down. I want to write it that way. I don't ever think it was just me. It was me and Robert Adams. And that that was prescient or that that was perceptive on the part of Bunnell, all I can say is that I, you couldn't have paired me with anybody that I'd be more appreciative of later because I came to respect so much all the work he was done and see. I mean, he says himself that you come perilously close to the banal, the mundane, and and that's where his work resides. And I, and I understand that, but I also get the grace and delicacy and exactitude of that work, and it can, at moments, you know, bring you to tears with its exactness and its beauty, and and so that's a great honor in a way. And I I don't know what Peter Bennell would say after all these years about that. What motivated him, or it was, I wouldn't be sad if he just said, well, those were the two best options available at the moment. I wouldn't be saddened by that. I mean, you, you two guys would have met each other and, and come to know each other anyway, two of the, the giants of, of your generation. You both had long family trees, yours through teaching, his maybe more through correspondence. You both taught. He taught English at, at Colorado College, you at, at Princeton, of course. So how did that show impact your relationship? How did... I mean, did you come to know each other as a result of that, or did you not maybe come to know each other? We met then. We 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 we, we met at the opening to that show, I believe, or at a party for that show in that time frame. But no, we we did not meet for a long, long time, and have actually met face to face just two or three times. 
but we have a, a small correspondence and certain and we've talked on the phone numerous times no it's just one of those lucky things it's just I consider that very very fortunate alignment but it's like that it is like alignment of stars or alignment of planets it may mean something it may not at the moment I'm sure he would say the same thing I was so embedded in the world I was living I was so living at, out of an this is not Vietnam I do not approve of this war and I am in a way when I look at my surroundings here in Virginia I would say this is heaven on earth and I don't know how he would I mean, what words he'd attach to looking at his environment at that moment and you'd say it knowing full well that that Vietnam is hell and it's just that two fully opposite realities can can correspond and coexist in different parts of the world at the same time and it seems like the same world we're in now you know the bitter cruelties everywhere and so i get when he says that we want to somehow forestall or hold back nihilism pessimism and i had just a moment of conversation with terry tempest williams the other day after she saw the book and we're both saying the same thing we want this to be perceived as a joyous thing and we experience it as a joyous thing i mean in in a world where there's more than enough cruelty to go around something that which does not perpetuate that but let you transcend it for an hour is a really nice thing just move away from it enter another world it's right here on earth now i mean that's why we call it that i mean it's partly scripture and it's partly this idea this maybe i don't know if you're ready to end but i'm and i have a little story for you that is a that is a kind of ending in panama we took the first poster to a frame shop don windsor and i and we went back to pick it up and the lady bringing us the frame print this was to stick in the lobby and she said oh this is really nice where'd you get this so it's all done in spanish but i understood pretty well and and could we buy some and we sort of looked at each other and she said how did you get it and he said we made it she said oh really so where where did you make it and he said here in panama and she got very stern she looked at him she said don't you play tricks with me I'm from Panama. I was born here. This stuff doesn't exist here. And we looked at each other and sort of winked and said, you know, okay, okay, fair enough. And I think that's not, I mean, it's not a bitter or a cruel thing to have recounted because anyone who would turn on a black light or a porch light or a strong light in a forest or even on their back porch will find that in the night things will come that they've never seen before and that's a pretty terrific thing seeing what you've never seen Emmett Gowan thank you very much you're totally totally well welcome now sorry if I spoke too much but it's there and out it came thank you Tyler that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth 
Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.